And I'm reading from Deuteronomy chapter 34, uh, verses 1 through the end of that chapter. Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land, from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, the Negev and the whole region from the Valley of Jericho, the city of Palms as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor, but to this day no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days, until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom because Moses had laid his hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord had commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. So as we come to the end of our series, this is the final sermon in the series of Moses' Dialogues with God. And in a sense, it's an epitaph sermon. And it should trigger in us to reflect a little bit on our lives and how they will get summed up in one day. What will be written on our tombstone? How would we sum up our life in one sentence? Think about it. If you have one sentence to sum up the most significant descriptor for your life, what would it be? And some people think for Moses that it's verse 12. It's the first thing that's said about him after his death is recorded. And that is, let me read it to you. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of Israel. But I don't think this is what Moses want, would want to choose as an epitaph. We'll come back to that. But I do want you to keep that in mind, that description of Moses, as we uh, think about the Moses that we met at the beginning of the series, the timid Moses who was called over to the burning bush. And when God gave him a calling, when, gave, when God put him on mission, his, Moses' response was, who am I? I don't have this. I'm not capable of doing this. And if you remember that sermon that Kyle preached, you remember that God's answer was, wrong question, Moses. You should be asking, who am I? And God begins to answer that question, first in that sermon, but really over the 40-year period between that call at the burning bush to Moses' recorded death at the end of Deuteronomy, 
God has been answering that question. Who am I? God has been revealing himself more and more significantly to Moses. So for Moses, that was a 40-year journey. For us, it was an eight-week journey. And we've looked at many of the highlights and lowlights uh, as God has revealed himself to Moses on mission. And I want to keep saying that, Moses on mission. We've looked at Moses' moods, his time when he was angry with God, frustrated with the people, frustrated with God, excited, fearful. We saw that on mission, his life was not always straightforward or easy, not always uh, with positive emotion, not always with negative emotion. It was a mixed bag of emotions processed with God in dialogue on mission. On mission through dialogue, responding to God's call through prayer. Now, we looked at those dialogues again and again and again, and we'll see that they weren't prayers, random prayers of intercession. He didn't look around and say, huh, I wonder who's hurting today. Look at the Moabites over there. And he didn't, they weren't random prayers of supplication. Huh, what would I like? I know, uh, I'd, like, uh, I'd like a new car, whatever. It wasn't, they weren't random prayers of supplication. And they weren't random prayers of thanksgiving either. He wasn't like, oh, thanks for the pillar, thanks for the... Now, I'm not saying that they weren't prayers of intercession. They weren't prayers of supplication. They weren't prayers of thanksgiving. They were. Many of the times they were. But these are wrestling prayers of mission. They were always related to how he saw his role and his place and his calling on mission. So we're reminded through this that calling has two parts. We are called out of and we're called into. And the point being, and I think this is the point that Lissy was making in the call to worship this morning, it's not about wanting a little bit more or an add-on. God wants all of us, the whole of us. So we're called, we're saved from sin, we're saved into mission. We're saved or called out of death and into life. Moses is called out of obscurity and into purpose and a place in redemptive history. There's a transition going on, a change in direction. This is not an add-on. This is a profound reshaping of both the heart and the trajectory of lives. Israel is called out of slavery and into the promised land. And these two things are linked, of course. Moses' calling is to be God's instrument in Israel's deliverance. And my hope that is that in this series, you have heard the invitation to continue or to begin on a 40, 60, 80-year dialogue on mission. Because this is where the real dialogue happens. This is where the real growth happens, when we're on mission. And of course, this makes a pretty good transition to Rev 7 as well. So that's just a nice little bonus with this sermon, that we get to look at this transition from the life of Moses into our life of a church on mission. So there are two pieces of the final narrative that Gloria read that I want to pull up or pull out. One are that there are real consequences. And the second one is that there is real grace. So we're going to look at the real consequences, the real grace, and then we're going to do a series wrap-up at the end. 
So let's begin with this idea of there are real consequences. So Moses has been on mission for, for 40 years. And in verse 4, we see uh, that he's been doing a pretty good job of that. He's been dragging the Israelites, kicking and screaming, uh, out of e Egypt to Mount Sinai. The law is given to them through the wilderness. And now they're looking on the cusp of going across the Jordan into the Promised Land. And it's been a long and hard journey. The Israelites have often been done that uh, resentfully, bitter, uh, bitterly, and without being an easy people to shepherd. And he is standing here now, walking up Mount Nebo with not one toe. Not one of his toes gets to cross the Jordan and touch the Promised Land. And that's been his mission. That was his calling, to lead the people there. And in a sense, you can understand the sense of, of devastation or sadness or his response uh, to that. And it's not like he didn't want to go there. If you look at uh, Deuteronomy 3, verses 23 to 25, he's talking in this chapter, almost at the end of the journey, to the Israelites. He's giving them sort of... a a repeat version of the law, which is pretty much what the book of Deuteronomy is. And he says, At the time I pleaded with the Lord, Sovereign Lord, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. You've started to reveal yourself to me. For what God is there in heaven and earth who can do the deeds and mighty works that you do, let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan and the fine hill country and Lebanon. He's pleading with the Lord to take him there. So it's not like he doesn't want to go. So Jacob, one of his ancestors, got to live in Canaan for a while. Abraham and Joseph at least got to get their bones carried there and buried there, right? So why not Moses? He's in fine physical shape. We can see that in verse 7. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. It wasn't that he was too old. Now, for those of you who know your biblical history, there's a, a rather standard answer that's given to this, and it's important that we look at that. But it's not the whole story, but we're going to begin by looking at that. And that's the story of Meribah. And now, Carl preached on one of the stories at Meribah, where uh, Moses was told by God to strike the rock to bring water forth. And the Israelites were able to, to drink and the flocks were able to be, uh, to be nourished. But there's another rock in another part of Meribah uh, that happens a little bit later uh, on the, in, the, um, in Numbers 20. And it's a different context and it's a different situation. And the second time God uh, says to Moses, he doesn't say go strike the rock. He says go speak to the rock. Tell it to let water come forth. And Moses didn't follow the directions. He actually went and he hit it with his staff. And, and God got very upset. And you know what? When I look at that, I, I ask the question, what's the big deal? Speak to the rock, hit the rock. Last time we hit the rock, the water came out. Is this really worth uh, the consequence of not getting to go where you desperately wanted to go? Now, People have done a lot of work. Scholars have tried very hard to come up with good reasons to make this into a big deal. Some of them are more convincing than others. Some people say that he 
He assumed that it wasn't enough, because in verse 51, we actually, uh, uh, we actually see uh, the word here, because you, let me read it. Uh, 50. Because, oh, this is in, um, uh, in 51, in Deuteronomy 32, a couple of chapters early, uh, Deuteronomy 32, 51, he's saying that you won't, on that same day the Lord told Moses, go up into the Abram range to the Mount Nebo in Moab across the Jericho to view Canaan, the land I'm giving the Israelites as their own possession, there on this mountain, so he's sort of predicting what we read about, there on the mountain that you have climbed, uh, you will die and be gathered to your people, just as your brother Aaron died on Mount Hor and was gathered to his people. This is because both of you broke faith with me in the presence of the Israelites at the water of Meribah, the second time, Meribah Kadesh, in the desert of Zin, and because you did not uphold my holiness among the Israelites. Therefore, you will only see the land from a distance. You will not enter the land uh, that I am giving the people of Israel. And then it says here this word, broke faith. That judgment that's coming from God, broke faith, is the same word in Hebrew as adultery. Moses is being uh, accused of committing adultery. For God, this was a big deal. There's something that's going on here. And one of the assumptions is that he didn't trust God enough, that he didn't have enough faith that speaking to it would be enough, that he needed to hit it somehow with a rock. And so instead of going back to what God had told him, he went back to what had historically worked. And so he wasn't connecting to God at the time, but connecting to some sort of distant concept. So that's one argument the scholars used. I don't know how convincing that is. Moses assumed, this is another argument, that his staff had some kind of magic power. And so he was hitting the rock because he thought the staff had the power. And it specifically says in the text, if you read Numbers 20, uh, to show, show that I am holy. And so some scholars think that he's sort of implying that the staff is what does the thing, not, what, not God's holiness, which is uh, bringing about the water. Another argument that people use is that the staff actually re represents Moses' holiness. And so he's sort of usurping God's position and he's saying, no, it's me. It's me and my authority, not his holiness, his authority. The staff is a representation of authority or power. And so M Moses is saying, it's my power, my authority, which is doing this. Other people argue, and this is something that Kyle brought out in the text, that the rock represents Christ. And we see that from texts in the New Testament. And you can't hit the rock twice. That judgment of the staff can only happen once. Now, I can tell you that I don't really think any of them make a lot of sense. They're very good efforts by theologians to come up with an answer, to give us a why. We don't know other than that God said, don't do it. Or God said to do this and he did something else. And I tell you, it's not super satisfying. It's not satisfying to me. I would really like a better answer as to why this was a big deal. But there's an application just in the fact that I would like a better answer. And the application is to Christian ethics. Why does God say, shouldn't come before obey, right? It should be listen, obey, and perhaps out of curiosity ask why. But we shouldn't be saying, doesn't make sense to me, therefore I might go down a different path. Now, 
This is something that needs to apply to, especially young people, thinking about these things, but for us as well as adults. There are very clear instructions about how to prioritize our finances. For younger people, it's probably more about clear instructions about how to live with sexual ethics, right? These things don't always make sense to us. We might wonder or question why. And the truth is, it's enough to say because God said so. Now, we have to be careful because we really need to make sure God said so, otherwise we're going to end up on a crusade, right? Which is not obviously listening to God. So we do really need to listen to God before we obey him. But we also need to obey him, otherwise we become a wayward, saltless church. And sometimes the way we want to obey is that we want to force everybody out there to obey what we think God says rather than turning that obedience inwards on ourselves and holding ourselves accountable as a church. So we need to begin not by asking why. Maybe we can ask God in the coming kingdom. But we need to learn that the, the answer is first listen, then obey, and be curious about why, but maybe be okay not knowing why. So Moses doesn't get to see his on-mission calling go to completion. But he, he sees the land, but he's not the one to lead the people into it. Why not? Because he broke faith. Because he was idolatrous in some way. He loved other gods besides Yahweh. He built his own kingdom rather than God's kingdom. And he missed out on some of the joy of mission. And when you break faith, when you're adulterous, when you break mission, you're outside the joy of mission. And this may sound obvious, right? You break from being on mission, you don't experience the joy of mission. But it's a little deeper than that. Life is supposed to be a kingdom-building activity. And you know what my experience is? For most of us, it is. The question isn't, are we building a kingdom? The question is, which kingdom are we building? And Christians, in my experience, and I count myself in this, of course, is that we're pretty good at overloading for mission. We're pretty good at saying there are two kingdoms, and there's my kingdom, and I, I want to participate in God's kingdom. So I'm going to keep building my kingdom, but I'm going to find all these little places that I can add on and be more faithful in committing to God's kingdom. What we're not so good at is removing the first kingdom. That's not the wrestling that we want to do. We've got all of these ideas about who we should be, what we should be, uh, how we will be significant. What if Moses had turned around and said, you know what? My definition of being significant is being a shepherd in Midian. I really don't like this idea of going back to Egypt. That sounds fraught with anxiety, full of danger. I don't think the people are going to believe me anyway. And then the interesting thing, God doesn't even tell him the rest of the story at that point. That was enough for Moses to be scared. And so we're in the same place. What does it mean to wrestle with God? Not just to add on, not just to find ways of expressing faithfulness, but to genuinely orient our lives towards building the kingdom of God, which means uprooting all the ways that we're holding on to building our own kingdom and being willing to give them up. We're not good at removing the first kingdom, the kingdom 
our own kingdoms because that's not the type of wrestling we want to do with God. But there are consequences. We miss out on the joy of missing. We miss out on being part of eternal meaning. And I wonder how much I've missed out on already. And there's a place here for lament, but also a place for encouragement. What do I really want? Do I want to be part of the story of redemptive history in the most full and complete way that I can possibly be? Do I want to keep working at orienting my life around building God's kingdom? Am I willing to do more than just add on to my existing kingdom, pieces of God's kingdom? Or am I really willing to go deep and really focus on what God uh, is really calling me to do? Am I willing to listen and obey and perhaps ask why a little later? Lament, lament, repent, and go. There are real consequences so I encourage you, lament, repent, and go. But there's also real grace, and this is really the good news. Moses climbed Mount Nebo. God showed Moses the whole land of Canaan, and from the top of Mount Nebo, Moses finally gets to see the land flowing with milk and honey that God has promised his ancestors, but he'll never enter. But let's put this into perspective. Right? And this is really important, especially as we're starting to look at the whole book in context, or wrapping up the whole book. There's a big metaphor that runs all the way through this story. right? And it's an important metaphor for us to see. The Hebrews are, fleed, are freed from slavery. They become God's people with the Mosaic Covenant at Mount Sinai. I will be your people. I will be your God. You will be my people. That covenant is mediated by Moses, they walk on a refining journey through the wilderness and they enter into the promised land. Now, it's a real story. When I say it's a metaphor, I'm not saying it's not historically what actually happened. But it's, in effect, the Old Testament's version of Pilgrim's Progress. This is where we're supposed to see Hebrews were freed from slavery, from Pharaoh, we are freed from sin. The people become God's people with the Mosaic Covenant, we become God's people through the new covenant, the work of Christ on the cross. Their covenant was mediated by Moses, our covenant mediated, or the new covenant mediated by Jesus. They walk on a refining journey through the wilderness. We walk on a refining journey through our lives of faith. A journey, the fancy word for that is just we are sanctified as we walk. They enter into the promised land. We enter into the coming kingdom of God. There's a sense that we're glorified uh, when we finally get into the presence of God. Now, this metaphor is a great metaphor for the Christian life. It's also a real historic story, but we're supposed to see the connection. But it is just a metaphor, and it has places in it where it breaks out of the metaphor. In our text, we're seeing a really personal moment between God and Moses that transcends the metaphor. Moses has been adulterous, to the mission of the Lord. But the Lord has not abandoned him. Let me read verse uh, 5, uh, the second part of verse 5. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, had died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab. So M Moses, even in his death, is one-on-one -on -one with God, in the presence of God, 
seeing that the, God's faithful promises to his people will, uh, will come to fruition. He's actually literally visually seeing uh, the promises laid out before him. Then he's died and God takes the trouble to bury him. It's incredibly intimate and personal. We don't even know where the grave is because this really is a moment between Moses and God. The Lord has not abandoned him. Moses also will enter the promised land, right? He won't enter the metaphorical representation of the promised land. He won't enter Canaan, but he will enter the coming kingdom of God. He will be there. His failure will be wiped away. His mission failure will be wiped away. He will be there on judgment day and he will be there in the coming kingdom. So in a sense, in this world, there are consequences. His mission got a little derailed in places. His, his infidelity and his faithfulness caused some disruption to what he experienced in terms of mission joy. But if we take a step back and we look at the big picture here, the redemption through Christ on the cross applies to Moses. And Moses will enter the promised land. And ultimately, if you ask Moses, what do you want, Canaan or the coming kingdom of God? I know which one Moses would have said. Right? In fact, in a sense, he's already starting to see that because he sees the face of God. So we too will be there in the coming kingdom with Moses. And our failure, our mission failure too, can be wiped away. And so given this, we could ask the question, why even bother with being on mission? Why bother with being on mission? Why bother with all this struggle? Why bother with reorienting our lives? Why bother with prioritizing the kingdom of God? Why not just do our little bits with our own kingdoms and put a little bit of dressing on, on the top of that? And all's well that ends well. We're going to end up in the kingdom anyway. Well, let me read this passage again, but I, or pieces of this passage again, and let's look at who the active voice is in Deuteronomy 34. Then... First piece would make you think it's Moses, right? Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo, but then it swaps over. The Lord showed him the whole land. Then the Lord said to him, this is the land I promised Abraham, Isaac. Then the Moses servant, the Moses servant of the land of the Lord died. And you think, oh, maybe he did something. He died. And now as the Lord had said he would, and the Lord buried him. So we're seeing again and again through this. And we jump down to verse 10. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And the ironic thing about this is it's often presented the other way around. And there's truth to the other way around, that, God, that Moses knew God face to face. But in this text, it says God knew Moses face to face. So Deuteronomy 34 is not stressing Israel's leader, Moses' knowledge of the Lord, it's emphasizing God's knowledge, personal knowledge, intimate knowledge, fellowship with Moses. So Moses originally asked a question, remember? Who am I to be a mission with you, God? I'm you know, at the burning bush. Remember that question? God said, wrong question. You should be asking, who am I? Well, you see, now we see that God is finally answering that first question. Who am I? You're the one I know face to face. That's Yahweh's answer to Moses. You're the one I know face to face. Finally, Moses is fully defined. You're the one I know face to face. And I think actually this is what Moses would have wanted on his epitaph. 
Verse 10b. Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And would you like that on your epitaph? I think I would like that on my epitaph. And here's the deal, right? John 14, verses 8 to 9, there's a little discussion with the disciples. Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, Don't you know, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who's seen the Father has seen, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? In seeing Jesus Christ, whether in person or through the scriptures, we see the Father face to face. So let me say that again. In seeing Jesus Christ, either in person or through the scriptures, we see the face of God. We are face to face with God. Prayer dialogue through scripture on mission. Listen and obey. It's his face that draws us into mission. You want to know why? It's not because of all any sort of uh, consequence or it's not any sort of fear or not fear of consequence. It's his face that draws us into mission. So let's wrap up the series. Let's spend a little bit of time looking at the big picture. We said that as a metaphor that Moses is the covenant mediator foreshadowing. In this metaphor, Moses is the covenant mediator. He's the one that mediates the covenant between God and the people. And he's foreshadowing the role of Christ in doing that. But there's more to this foreshadowing than just a mediation role. We, uh, we know about Moses' infidelity at Meribah. But, and I hinted to this before, there's a lot more to the story than just his infidelity. And that comes out in the text. I read to you Deuteronomy uh, chapter 3, verses 20, 23 to 25, where uh, he's begging to go into the land, the promised land. And God says, we're not doing that. Uh, and he's telling the people that God told him, you're not going in there. And then in verse 26, which I didn't read to you, he gives them the reason. He says, but because of you, the Lord, because of you, and he, this is Moses talking to Israel, but because of you, the Lord was angry with me and would not listen to me. That's enough, the Lord said, do not speak any more about the matter. So there's something here about Moses not just standing between as a covenant mediator, but he's also standing in the place of Israel. Some of the judgment on Israel is also being put onto Moses. So we see then there's a, these aspects of Moses that we really need to wrap our head around. As a prophet, he's speaking for Israel to God and for God to the people. So he has that prophetic role. Now, I would also argue that he has a kingly role. Now, you might like king. We didn't even have kings at this time. And no, he didn't. But he was a vassal leader. He took over the true role of king in the sense that he represented God to the people in leadership as well as with the voice of God. So he was blessed with capacity and equipped by God to lead. Now, in our context, almost all of us are blessed with capacity. We are blessed to be leaders in the context we find ourselves in, whether that be uh, with the blessings, material blessings we have, or the status or authority or positional power we have. We are blessed and we have some form of kingship, some sort of dominion that we are called to exercise as vassal kings for the Lord. So Moses was both prophet and 
and king. But we also see that, in a sense, judgment was on Moses. He bore some of the judgment of the people. He also formed as the function of priest. His life is a place where Israel's rebellion and God's judgment meet, which is the same as Christ on the cross. Maybe a better way to say that is it foreshadows Christ on the cross, where our rebellion meets God's judgment. Now, there's a couple of things to see here. We need to see the face of God in the Scripture as we encounter Christ, but we also need this bigger definition of mission. We need to be, like Moses was, prophet, priest, and king to a broken world. We're called to live sacrificially. This is a role of the priest, living for his kingdom, not for our kingdom. And we're called to be servant leaders with our blessings. This is the role of being a vassal king. And, you know, we talk about that a lot at North Point, whether we are good at implementing it is something to be asked in prayer, wrestling with God. So we have a good conceptual understanding about it. We teach a lot about that. But perhaps and confession from, from me, what we don't preach about a lot is the role of the prophet, right? And we need to remember the first one. We're called to be prophets. We need to bring the world of God, the word of God, into our world. And this is not just about Rev 7 or Afghanistan or the Caucasus or Zimbabwe. This is about our neighbours and our friends and our families. Prophet, priest and kings, not just priests and kings. Now, in our Bible study, we've been talking a little bit about this and we've been asking ourselves, who do you wish that you could share the gospel with? Who are you praying for? Where do you need boldness? You know what? We're finding ourselves a little stumped. I mean, it's a scary and sad thing to say, that we're, we can come up with two or three people and we can maybe pray for them, or we can't come up with anybody. And you know what? There's no judgment or condemnation in that, but there's at least the prayer for God to put some people on our hearts to pray for, four opportunities to share the gospel with, to be bold, to be prophetic, to speak the word of God into the world. So I'm encouraging you now to take this call incredibly intentionally, incredibly personally, feel the conviction of God. And if you don't feel the conviction of God, pray for the conviction of God. Pray to be on mission, not just as king, in terms of how you use your blessing and your gifts in this world, not just as priest, living sacrificially, but also as prophet, bringing the word of God into the world with boldness and conviction. And pray for that. Pray to, to adopt that role of prophet. Pray in your Bible studies. Pray in your families, pray at the dinner table, pray at night before you go to get. In a sense, bring your prayer life on mission in this prophetic domain of the missions world. I think the really big point about the story of Moses not making it into the land, the promised land, is there's only one prophet who is righteous enough to walk his people into the promised land. And it's not me, and it's not you, and it's not Moses. It's Jesus Christ. And when you see his face, you see God's face. And we need to be looking at that face in prayer dialogue through Scripture on mission. I'm going to say that again because it sort of, I hope, sums up the whole series. 
There is only one prophet who is righteous righteous enough to walk his people into the promised land. And it's not me, and it's not you, it's not Moses, it's Jesus. His face shows us God's face, and we need to be looking for it in prayer dialogue through Scripture on mission. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the life of Moses. We thank you that this book doesn't end with just some sort of valedictorian speech, but it's really honest and raw. It's full of incredible hope and disappointment. We get to see your faithful outworking and we get to see your grace work through someone who was on mission, overcoming his mission failure, that we see our calling in this as prophet, priests and kings, our need to be bold, to living lives on mission, to building your kingdom, to working out the parts of our kingdoms which are getting in the way of that. There's so much here, Father. And we pray for your spirit to challenge us and to encounter us in prayer dialogue on mission. Help us to be looking for the face of Christ as we wrestle not just with random prayer, but prayer about being on mission, of responding to your call, of finding our significance in the eternal, meaningful story of redemptive history. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.